think we are keenly aware, uh, especially right now, that we live in a world of injustice and evil, and not just in our own media lives and in our surroundings, but obviously throughout the world. I mean, in the last week, we have seen with our own eyes horrific evil and just injustice committed against innocent civilians, from the elderly to the infants. Even as we're here together this morning, war is raging and war is looming in the world. And it's easy to look around and to ask, where is God in the midst of this kind of world with this kind of evil? Where is God when injustice after injustice is committed against people? Does he see? Does he care? Does the God we just praised and prayed to, does he take evil seriously? Do the scriptures, do the scriptures give us answers, a solution that is, as serious as our own lives, as serious as the world in which we live. Well, this morning we come to the center point of the scriptures, the darkest day, the the darkest moment, the darkest evil in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. In his classic work, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes, there is, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. So in this world of of sin, in your own life of sin and evil, God has spoken Clearly, publicly, historically, in the cross of Christ. There is wisdom and power in the cross of Jesus Christ that eternity will never exhaust. And it's the cross that we're going to look at this morning in John 19. John chapter 19 verse 16, the second half, to 30. John is the fourth gospel in your Bible. Chapter number is the big number. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. I'm going to read the passage for us now. Look at verse 16b all the way to 30. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the main point of this sobering section of Scripture. Jesus is God's true king. Jesus is God's true king who by his death finished the work of salvation. Jesus is God's true king who by his death finished the work of salvation. Let's see this passage as John unfolds it for us. First seeing point one, if you're taking notes, God's king was crucified. God's king was crucified. And that's the second part of verse 16 to 22. God's king was crucified. Now, we say the obvious because the obvious is not accepted by everyone. Jesus is God's king, the son of God, and he was crucified. When we come to this passage, Pilate, who was Rome's regional ruler of that area, he has pronounced to the crowd that Jesus is innocent, and he has said it three times. So what happened to Jesus here was unjust. And we read there in verse 16, so they took Jesus. It's at this point that Jesus would have received the terrible flogging. It would have been a horrible beating to his back. There were many who were crucified who died from that alone. Now, John isn't interested in giving us all the details about that because his readers were well aware of what they would have done. He's not seeking to drum up your emotions in this. 
was common for those who were crucified to carry their own cross to the site of their crucifixion. So unlike probably what you've seen, they would not have carried the vertical part of the cross. That would have already been staked in the ground. They would have carried the cross beam. And most say that that weighed around 15 or 16 kilograms, so around 35 pounds. And the distance to carry it would have been about 300 meters or 330 yards. And now we know from the other gospels that Jesus didn't make it the whole way. He collapsed. He would have collapsed from physical weakness. He would have collapsed because he had inevitably lost so much blood. Simon of Cyrene was tasked with helping him. And they went to the place of the skull. It is Golgotha. In Latin, it would have been called, in in the Vulgate, Calvary. And they went outside the city for the crucifixion. From the Mosaic law in Leviticus, it was outside the city, outside the camp, where those who were under the curse were executed. Leviticus 24, 14, bring out of the camp the one who cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. This was a people who understood very clearly that God dwelled in their midst. They were to learn what it means to live in the midst of, for God to dwell, a holy God to dwell in the midst of sinful people. And so someone who was under God's curse was not to defile the place where God dwelled by being executed within the camp. So they were taken outside of the camp to be executed. Jesus had been judged by his own people, by the religious leaders, as someone who was cursed by God, specifically for blasphemy, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, the son of God. And it was out there, outside the camp, at Golgotha, that verse 18, they crucified him. Crucifixion was painful. It was done either with ropes or nails around your wrists or nails through your palms and your ankles. Your arms would be outstretched so that you would eventually grow so tired you could no longer press up for air and you would die from not being able to breathe. The Romans only crucified the worst criminals, slaves. Two others beside Jesus were guerrilla fighters. They were insurrectionists. They, according to Rome, were terrorists. It was meant to be a visible, visible picture of Rome's justice on full display. Now think of this, unlike today, in which I think in most of the world, executions are done very privately. Only a few people see them away from the public eye not in the ancient world. It was done very publicly. It was meant to shame and humiliate, warn anyone who looked at the one being crucified. John doesn't tell us what was written on the inscription of the men crucified with Jesus. He tells us what was written 
above Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Rome's point in writing the inscription was to warn others, if you do this, this will be your end. What was his crime? According to Rome, it was he claimed to be a king of this people. So the formal charge was sedition. It was a place only held for Caesar. From the vantage point of the Jewish people, the place that he claimed to hold was only reserved for the true Messiah. There was, in their minds, no way that God's king would end up on a Roman cross. And yet, once again, in writing this, Pilate had done, he had acted far better than he could have ever known. Mysteriously, here was God's king, the long-predicted suffering servant who would come into this world, into human history, in the midst of his own people, and he would atone for human sin. Charles Spurgeon writes, How wondrous was the condescension that he whom all heaven adored as the ever-blessed son of the highest should be hanged on a tree with his accusation written over his head, just as if he had been a common malefactor. It was God's purpose that his son should not die on the cross without a public proclamation of his innocence and an official recognition that he was what he said he was, the king of the Jews. Who was to put up such a notice over his head as he hung there? It was best that it should be done by the Roman governor, done with an official pen, and there it must stay under the authority of the Roman law, as long as the body of Jesus hung on the cross, see what God can do. God's king was crucified. But why was he crucified? Because God had bound himself in covenant with this people for this purpose, that they might Bring the Savior, the world's true king, into the world. It's why God called them out to himself. It's why God created them as a people. Their whole history was preparation for this moment. So if in the Old Testament we see Christ in shadows, here in the Gospels we're seeing him in full light. God's king was crucified between two criminals. We can't help but see the servant whom the prophet Isaiah predicted. In Isaiah 53, 12, when he said of the servant that he would be numbered among the transgressors with them, he fulfills this pattern of King David who suffered and lamented, who, as Pavel just read to us, said out loud, a company of evildoers encircles me. Prepared for years and centuries to welcome this king who would suffer, those who should have seen him so clearly were blind, strangely, too busy 
seeking his crucifixion. What do you see and feel when you see the cross of Christ? See the glory of the God who intentionally, purposely, unchangeably planned and purposed and acted in this way. As we live in a world right now where hate and war and violence and sin so evidently rage, see the glory of the God who came into this world in this way, in weakness, who set his face to go to the cross. This king who will not be seen apart from the cross. The cross means Weakness is the way. Now, what does that mean? It means that as the people of the cross who have trusted in Christ, we do not fight. We do not wage war. We do not live by the weapons of this world. The world thinks of them as weak, but this is the power of God. Humility, not pride. A gospel of grace, not human righteousness. Obedience, even when it's costly to God, to Christ, in a world in which sin is so normal and righteousness seems so very strange. God's king on the cross redefines the way you see glory. It redefines how you see and measure what is lasting and what is temporary and fleeting. I'll consider whether or not what you're running after, whatever you're running after with your life is shaped by the cross or by this world and its values. Pilate wrote the inscription, King of the Jews in three languages, Aramaic, the local language of the Jews, Latin, which was the official language of Rome, and Greek, which was the international, the trade language that the Romans and the Jews spoke. Obviously, what he meant was for the world to know the reason he was crucified. And if, if Pilate couldn't resist the religious leaders, ultimately, what's he doing? He can certainly mock them. One last piece of revenge with this title, even as they asked him to change it to verse 21, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. He's been so weak. I mean, after all, they overpowered him for Jesus to be sentenced to be crucified. But here, Pilate draws the line. He writes, what I have written or says, I have written. No matter his motive, what he wrote was true. F.F. F. Bruce writes, the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. Was what Pilate, the leaders, the crowd did that day evil? Yes. Was it sin? Yes. Don't overlook that. Jesus willingly subjected himself to this level of real evil and real sin. 
You ever been wronged by someone? You ever been mistreated? Someone treat you with injustice? Jesus knew that to a depth you cannot fathom. And he never sought personal vengeance. He's entrusting himself to God the Father. Because while all of these people unwittingly act with real evil toward Jesus, they are also unwittingly fulfilling the plan of God. As you read this text, you are meant to see that it's not Caiaphas, it's not Pilate, it's not anyone who's in control. It's not their plan being fulfilled. This is the plan of God the Father and God the Son and Spirit from all eternity being fulfilled. Jesus prepared deliberately for this hour, this hour of suffering and death. He taught clearly about it. He said, this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Never did anyone imagine his lifting up would be on a cross. When he was crucified, they would have laid him down on his back on that crossbeam. And then they would have raised him and stuck him to the vertical stake in the ground. Lifted up was he to die. And being lifted up, he reigned from the cross. The true God has purpose to display his glory to all the world in the cross. This God is totally different from the ways of this world. And if you would see this God in all of his glory, you must see Jesus on the cross, not to be mocked, but to be worshiped. You must see that that is God's wisdom and God's power. And you must rejoice that God's king went there for sinners. God's king was crucified. Secondly, God's king fulfilled scripture. He fulfilled scripture. Verses 23 through 27. God's king fulfilled scripture. There in verse 23, John hones in on the specific details of the cross. It was standard practice for those who were carrying out the execution to take their clothes. And we learned that the garments were divided into four parts because there would have been four men responsible for the work of crucifying Jesus. John mentions the tunic, seamless, woven together in one piece from the neck to the feet. Because it was woven together seamlessly, it was valuable, too valuable to cut up. So they just cast lots. They rolled dice to see whose it would be. And John here is reflecting on what they did in a very ordinary way, and he sees in it the fulfillment of scriptures. God has so ordered history that he has used people and events in one period of history to prepare his people for another period of history. King David, in his own life as God's anointed one, he suffered. And and God so ordered his life that he underwent great trial as he ascended to the throne. His life, we see, was a pattern ordered by God. 
to prepare God's people for the greater King David, the greater anointed one. And so King David wrote Psalm 22, and he would have written it in his own sorrow and lament. It was meant to give words to the righteous, faithful Israelite, to the faithful Christian in suffering to express your cry to God. It's a picture of the innocent man who is unjustly treated by the wicked. It's a cry that God gives graciously to his people when you are in the darkest moment of your life. And John, as he reflected on that day, he saw that that psalm reached its fulfillment, its fullness in the expression and the cry of Jesus. And as he looked at that psalm, he saw King David wrote, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. For David, he was expressing utter despair. He was expressing the utter helplessness he knew in the face of the wicked. It would find its greatest fulfillment in the expression of the work of Christ on the cross who suffered there. God was in patterns and predictions preparing his people for centuries for the cross. It wasn't an accident of history. The cross is the center of human history. How did Jesus' death fulfill this psalm? Well, he wasn't only greater than David, the one to whom David pointed. His suffering was the climactic fulfillment of it. What did King David cry out in Psalm 22? He said, they have pierced my hands, my feet. And while John doesn't record it, obviously the other gospel writers do, that Jesus on the cross cried out the very beginning of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was on the lips and the mind of Jesus when he was crucified? Scripture. So immersed in the scriptures that he's praying the prayer of the righteous sufferer to his father as he dies. And what does John want you to see as he's being crucified? That the scriptures were being fulfilled. That all of the plans by the wicked men In the midst of that, God is doing the most good, carrying out his plans. Why was he crucified? Several answers. Jewish leaders despised him. Pilate was a weak and a passive leader. He was crucified because no one in the Jewish crowd, no one among the Roman soldiers did anything to stop the process. He was crucified because the world united against him, but he was ultimately crucified to fulfill the plan of God for the glory of God, to save a people for God. In response to this world that had rebelled against its true king, the very God who created the world, God sent his son who willingly came into this world. It was for centuries a mystery hidden, veiled from the world until the one through whom the world was created came in and took on flesh. How seriously does God take sin and evil? So seriously that the very one through whom and for whom the world was created came into the world to die, to subject himself to evil, to 
not just die, but to live, to fulfill all the requirements of righteousness. It was only by a righteous life that he could substitute himself in this way for sinners and actually accomplish salvation. In this moment, you're very much meant to see that Jesus of Nazareth was an innocent man and he was being unjustly crucified, but you're meant to see much more that God's great purpose for the whole world to give a bride to his son was being carried out. In those hours, remarkably, God, the son, was being a willing sacrifice for sinners. Now, what he suffered on the cross was great, and we should not minimize it. But there were many others who suffered as he did physically. What he suffered spiritually was infinitely greater. And this week, especially as acts of evil and violence are so visible to us, as so much is raging in the world, perhaps in God's kindness, you can better see how real evil and sin is in this world. Because it's not until you see how sinful sin against God really is that you will see God's wrath not as arbitrary, but as praiseworthy and good. That Jesus absorbed that wrath in his body on the cross. On the cross, he was, you couldn't see it, destroying the power of the devil. He was securing access to God for any who would see who he truly is and what we really are as guilty before him and repent and believe in him. On the cross, so much more was happening than what you could see with your eyes. He was fulfilling scripture. In the cross, we see the God who is deadly serious about addressing evil and sin at its deepest core. The world is so outraged by evil, rightly, that we see committed horizontally against each other. But that's only the fruit of this deeper evil, sin that's committed vertically against God. And the cross stands as God's immovable answer in Jesus to this wicked, unjust world that he has provided and accomplished a just and good salvation. What the world sees as shame, you are meant to see as glory. What does the cross free you to do? It frees you from living for yourself and for lasting glory. Frees you from living for sin as its slave and to live for righteousness. It frees you to enjoy all things as they were meant to be enjoyed for God and his glory. See your king on the cross. Willingly despising shame for joy set before him. The cross isn't just telling you how deadly serious God is about addressing evil. It tells you how eternally serious God is about your joy. The cross is telling you how weak and powerless and fading the joy of sin is, how passing this world is. The cross is holding out to you life and joy you are meant to know in in God. 
Where is God in the midst of the greatest evil in this world? In his own son, he has entered into it. He has absorbed it. On the cross, he has defeated it. Because of the cross, one day there really will be a world for you who are trusting in Christ that you will walk into and there will be no evil. The scriptures cannot be broken. That world feels so distant. It feels way too good to be true. But the cross secured it. And God will get glory from the cross. The cross will not fail to accomplish every purpose for which the Son went to it. So confident that the cross is the point to which the scriptures flow to and flow from, we stake everything on the cross. We hold out the cross. We speak of the cross. We explain the cross because the cross is the power of God for salvation. It is power for you to have life in God. He's being crucified. God's son, he's the picture of total weakness. So much so that in his weakness, there's these four nameless soldiers that are dividing up his clothes among them. And he's accomplishing the eternal plan of God in Christ. So the soldiers did these things. They wouldn't have given a second thought to their actions. It was one more crucifixion. Suddenly, John tells us in verse 25, there were others there standing by him, watching him. Mary, his mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, women were with him when he died, when he was raised. I can't imagine the human element of this as Mary watched her own son whom she bore suffer in this way. Notice verse 26, John, the writer of the gospel was there. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, who knew Jesus's love personally. We have these unique details because John saw it. And when Jesus saw his mother, he said, speaking of John, woman, behold your son and John, behold your mother. From that hour, John took her to his own home. It's not until verse 26 we actually hear from Jesus in the midst of all of this. And is Jesus concerned for himself? No. He's moving outward. He's concerned for those around him, his mother, his disciple. Uh, Mary would have been in her 40s or her 50s at this point. There's no mention of Joseph. She's clearly a widow. She has need for provision. John calls, Jesus calls John to care for her. His brothers most likely were not there, and we would know from Scripture they didn't believe in their brother at this point. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus had already cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You're meant to see the glory of Jesus as he fulfills the Scriptures. There's no greater picture of self-giving than Jesus, the Son of God, giving up his life for the world. And remarkably, as God's true king, as he's being crucified, he's not too troubled to be bothered to move outward in love for his mother. He fulfilled all righteousness 
There's no provision that he's leaving undone. He's dying for the salvation of sinners throughout time and history. He's praying for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him and he cares for his mother. Behold this man. Behold your king whose glory is seen such that even in his death, he's putting the interest of others well before his own. This is the glory of God. He moves outward throughout eternity past in his own being between father, son, and spirit. He has been moving outward in love. And as the son is crucified, God, the son in the flesh, he is moving outward toward others. This is who God is. This is what he does throughout scripture. He moves toward his sinful people again and again until in his son, he becomes one of them. On the cross, God the Son, God's King, fulfilled Scripture. And on the cross, finally, God's King finished the work. God's King finished the work. Verses 28 to 30. He was crucified in the heat of the day. The sun would have been intense. He would have been extraordinarily thirsty. And he said, I thirst. Was he thinking of Psalm 69? King David in his prayer of suffering says, For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. It's another psalm in which he's being attacked by wicked men. Sour wine would never satisfy deep thirst. Or was he thinking of Psalm 22, 15, when King David writes, my tongue sticks to my jaws. It's the thirst of the righteous sufferer. What he suffered physically paled in comparison to what he suffered spiritually. As the sin bearer, the father turned his face away from him as he poured his wrath out on sin. And the soldiers, verse 29, they would have had a, a glass or a a jar of sour wine. It could have never satisfied what Jesus most thirsted for, what he had known his whole life, unbroken communion and fellowship with the Father. But what's John emphasizing as he closes this account? That the work of salvation is finished. Notice why Jesus said, I thirst in verse 28. Again, to fulfill the scriptures. You're meant to see he's not just the victim of an unjust scheme. He's in full control. Jesus had ruled to bring his life to this moment. As he died on the cross, he understood the Father's plan was being accomplished. And we read Jesus knowing that all was now finished. Mark reports in his own gospel that prior to his death, Jesus had refused to drink wine mixed with myrrh. That Wine was more of a sedative. Onlookers gave it to people going to their crucifixion to numb the pain, to dull their faculties. But Jesus refused to drink that. Why? He wanted to be in full control of all of his faculties. To endure every moment of suffering on the cross because he was finishing the work he had come into the world to do on the cross. He was ruling from that cross 
and realizing the end was near, knowing everything was finished, he cried out, I thirst. And when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Finished, verse 28. Finished in verse 30. Sour wine did not quench his thirst, but it fulfilled the scripture. Perhaps it was just enough for him to proclaim to the world, it is finished. The only one in human history who could ever achieve salvation, who could ever offer up not just righteous works to God, but a righteous sacrifice to God was this man. On the cross, he finished the work. He accomplished salvation. What did you accomplish in the last week? Nothing. No one can accomplish this. And his resurrection from the dead proves to the world God accepted him. What do you see in the cross of Christ? Where are you looking for salvation? What do you think you will offer up from your life to God that will be acceptable to him? Salvation was accomplished at the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Turn from yourself and turn to Jesus in faith. He receives you freely. To my Christian brothers and sisters, the work really is finished. You have embraced the cross. So one question for you is, why do you who have turned away from your works and trusted in Christ's work live your Christian life as if it's based on works? This grace in the cross is not just for your salvation. You live your whole Christian life by it. Jesus didn't come to free you from works in saving you so that you would now live by works once you're saved. Grace cleanses, grace empowers you for obedience. Personally, I hate treadmills. I hate them with everything in my being. They never stop. You go nowhere. They are monotonous. They're so boring. You know, some of them have the the videos where you can, it looks like you're jogging in the woods. You're not jogging in the woods. You're going nowhere. I don't know of anyone who, when the treadmill is finished, isn't thrilled it's over. I am. And yet I wonder if some of you live the Christian life as if it's a treadmill. You just got to keep up. Got to go faster. It's a never-ending treadmill of trying to give up. The work is finished. You're, you're, You're meant to... Quit living by the impulse and instinct of works and to live by grace. You're meant to have habits and rhythms of grace that keep you from getting back on the treadmill of works. Brothers and sisters, you're not defined by what you've done professionally. Whether you succeeded or you failed, you're not defined by whatever it is you think is ministry success. You're not defined students by your academic performance, whether that's great or praise God, whether it's terrible. Parents, you're not defined by how good the children are. You who are trusting in Christ are defined by Jesus's finished work. It is finished is just as good of news for you this morning as it was the hour you first believed. 
Believe Christ. Rest in this finished work. Nothing else is strong enough to hold your soul. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down. He gave up his spirit. God's king was crucified. God's king fulfilled the scripture. God's king finished the work. I want for you as you walk away from this sermon to see and be astonished by the glory of God's king being crucified for sinners. I want you to see maybe for the first time or freshly the glory of the God who would put his glory on display in this way on a cross. And I want in this next week, whatever injustice and evil you see out there or in here, that you take 10, 20, 30 looks at the cross of Christ. Whatever you don't understand, you're meant to see that in the cross, God is more committed to justice and doing good than you can fathom. He is more committed to atoning and to addressing evil than you can fathom. Trust the one who died on the cross. And in this wicked, rapidly changing world, live your life under the cross, safely in its shadow.